Yeah, I mean, the, the sort of the DNA of this was, as, as you invited us in to start talking about the changes taking place in the venture uh, model, and uh, we'll call it oversimplified as venture 1.0. Clearly, when there's change happening, it, it happens gradual, and then it hits a tipping point. And I think that what we're seeing is the tipping point of venture 1.0 going away. You can't lose uh, a central uh, player like Silicon Valley Bank and, and all the postmortems that uh, and the details will be revealed. And it's happening at, you know, in, in, in real time now as to reexamining, again, what I'll affectionately call the old model because it is an old model. And that's what we covered in session one. Mark, last time you ran the slide deck, are you gonna do that again for oh, session I two? I hope not, but I'll, uh, if you've forced me to, give me a, give me a moment. Yeah, and, and for those that, that were on session two, there's in this, in or in, didn't listen in on session one, there is a link to the deck from that as well, and there's supporting research, because that's really the DNA of, of what these sessions are about, is to talk about the cumulative research that has taken place already in examining the conventional venture model, not the industry itself, but the venture fund model on how can we fund innovation better so that both entrepreneurs have a better experience and investors have a better experience. All right. And that's the DNA of the cumulative research that's been put forth by some, some wonderful folks. Something I've studied for a long time. Um, I won't bore the folks that are um, on here with my background, but I literally started, was out on Sand Hill Road at 3000 Sand Hill in 1990 in a multifamily office. Was uh, The Band of Angels was founded in my office and managed money for a couple of Sequoia partners, their personal assets. So I just got lucky to join a firm that was in the belly of the beast before the internet took off. And then a lot of this stuff unfolded in front of me um, in the modern era of, of, of sort of, uh, of the venture and angel world. But we did our own securities research. We did our own money management. I was skilled and trained and, uh, and experienced in how to manage risk. And that really is the whole point um, that's been absent in how we fund innovative companies is an understanding and a knowledge base on risk management. And what we're seeing, obviously, with Silicon Valley Bank is just an example of the absence of good risk management as well as regulatory capture, as well as there's plenty of bl blame to go around in a variety of directions, but it manifests itself at its most fundamental level. So today's discussion is going to talk about this. We're calling this session two. Again, we're not going to review session one other than I would encourage you all that are interested to go back and look at the research linked in that. Uh, there's two other very distinguished and experienced and honorable guests on this panel. I say guests, co-panelists. Um, Anurag, I'm not going to try and butcher your last name. Chandra, I presume, or Chandra, I... Yeah, you got it. Both, both okay. If you're it's one of the two. Um, Anurag uh, and then Seth Morton, while his uh, current <laughs> position, Seth Morton's current position is um, him engaging and applying his uh, cumulative experience in a very specific entity and opportunity. Uh, his background is very telling and, and very well informed from a... a institutionally rigorous family office perspective. So Anarok, why don't you introduce yourself? We'll go to Seth and then we'll sort of kick this off. Yeah, sure, I'll be quick. Uh, I've been in Silicon Valley for over 20 years now. Uh, I've been mostly a general partner across uh, four venture funds, about two and a half billion under management. Uh, and I've also been in three startups in executive roles too, which were sold to public companies. And then uh, that's my GP kind of practitioner in the Valley hat. And then my other hat that I wear 
is I'm a trustee for the San Jose Pension Plan, uh, $9 billion under management, um, 10th largest city in America, and I chair the investment committee. So I, I get to see uh, funds from a completely different perspective, uh, and it's been quite illuminating. <laughs> Seth? Hi, thanks, Joe. Thanks, everybody. Um, yes, my uh, background, I uh, came to Texas in 2010 for a PhD in English literature, uh, but toward the end of it, found my way working for one of the largest family offices in Houston. It was newly founded, and the chief investment officer had a problem. The family didn't really know, have any kind of vision for their wealth, what they wanted it to do. The investment team had great experience, but couldn't communicate or help create a vision. And, and so I was stuck between these two groups of stakeholders and helped to both understand how to look at the world through the eyes of uh, investment team, and then also sit with the family and really ask some hard existential questions about the purpose of their life after they formed this, this family office. And that set me on a journey working with a number of families across the country uh, in pursuit of, of this problem and has led me to this um, world adventure and, and thinking a lot about how to help families and individuals better deploy capital in early stage investments. Yeah, and Seth and I cross paths. He is a rigorous student of the human condition, broadly defined, and it's been directed as of late in both the, in the family office environment and venture capital and entrepreneurship, uh, health tech in particular now. But uh, he was part of uh, Mark Sharp's group, which is the, uh, the Family Office Association, and I've been following that newsletter for years, and all of a sudden some really interesting, thoughtful content showed up with Seth's byline on it, and so we connected, and I sent him some of the white papers I've I've written and, and his first comment was, Joe, I've read your papers and this is, a, I've seen 300 venture funds plus in the role with this family office. And this is the first one I think that makes sense. And so um, that's really the, the impetus of, of, of um, Seth, our relationship with Seth. I wanna be very clear on that. On our prior session, we had Mel Carter who runs the Venture Fund of Funds practice for uh, GCM Grosvenor, very large and prominent uh, consulting firm out of Chicago. So this is the sort of folks that have been involved in these sessions. So I'd encourage those of you to, to, to review the prior one. There's a recording of it as well. We didn't link here. Cutting to the chase. What needs to happen? Session one says there's the model is changing and why? It was really focusing on the why the model needs to change with research supporting the why, because that wasn't even a, a, pos a, a, a um a popular narrative as short as January when the uh, session one took place. It's a narrative that's had a growing chorus, me included, but it wasn't a very popular narrative. Now that's changed dramatically, obviously, as we sit here today. Um, so really the why is the industry changing and the research is there, but ostensibly it's a tired model. It hasn't the conventional venture structure, the venture fund model hasn't changed largely since the first fund was launched in 1959. GP dominated, concentrated, undiversified portfolios, relying on some level of domain expertise or the principles, knowing what a good deal looks like with a effectively, as the research shows, an upside down capital deployment structure, uh, upside down from optim optimized. That's the old model. Uh, it needs to change. We've also seen and heard how inefficient it is for entrepreneurs to raise capital. In financial terms, it's a very high cost of capital for entrepreneurs, both in time and ultimately the term sheets. And as we're seeing with the Silicon Valley Bank relationship, 
also some of the things that would be required for them, where they have to put their banking money if they took money from this VC firm, where they have to keep their the capital that they did raise. So uh, that cost of capital is a problem with how we fund innovation. And if we're going to have an economy that is going to optimize on how we fund innovation, we have to fix some of these structural issues. It needs to be looked uh, viewed more as a asset class versus an access class. Again, access is an important component of what you're going to see in the post-mortem on Silicon Valley banks fallout and their cozy relationships with the venture industry. And as it turns out, the Federal Reserve. Um, so these are really important structural components. Um, included in that is, what, uh, can you go down to the next slide, Mark? I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. Yeah, here we go. Uh, diversification versus concentration. These hyperlinks do have the associated research with it. Um, this is specific to just manage transaction risk or what in financial nerds call systematic risk. Uh, no, excuse me, non-systematic risk, which is transaction risk. And diversification is an important part of this conversation. Now, there are some structural challenges in what is how do you diversify properly, given the operational constraints of the traditional conventional venture model. But when we're talking about fixing a system so we don't keep repeating the same behavior and then expect a different outcome, we need to get at the systemic design level. And that's what this research suggests. Seth, again, having built that family office or been involved, I should say, not building it, but been involved in deploying their capital, how much was risk management or diversification part of the conversation, if not from the family? Because from the uh, the professional side uh, of that those dynamics, the stakeholders that we do. Well, I think a, a, um, a pattern you see a lot, and certainly I, I saw a lot across a, a number of different family offices is uh, on the issue of diversification, families often understand the concept of diversification, but the how of diversification and the confidence to diversify are the kind of the two things where it falls out. So, you know, um, in here in Texas, if uh, a family makes uh, uh, a lot of money in energy markets, um, EMP exploration, uh, obviously there's a lot of concentration in energy and oil, and all those families to the letter will say, you know, we know we need to diversify, we need to diversify, and then you show them a set of options, and immediately it's okay. Well, let's let's revisit this in a year or something, like <laughs> and so you know. I, my approach, and I think, Joe, you take a similar one, too, is to think, okay, well, what's the behavior here or what's driving this sort of behavior? And um, it often comes down to uh, lack of understanding, confidence in a different sector, you know, when you know how to make money a certain way, asking, you know, diversifying out of that into something else is uncomfortable and difficult. And when it comes to early stage venture, I think if all of these issues become more difficult to uh, source um, the the issues um, of the fact that so much of that the industry itself and I think you put it well here it's access versus assets so people are gravitate toward the access side of it and that kind of covers over a lot of the fundamental things that you'd expect in other kinds of assets themselves and in a way, it sort of fills that gap. It fills that void, and that leads to a lot of, you know, what we might generously call suboptimal decisions. Yeah, Anurag, as a fiduciary with the San Jose 
City of San Jose pension plan. How much of this is a conversation at the trustee level? Uh, it's a great question. Um, in fact, uh, we're going through strategic asset allocation right now. I just came out of an investment committee meeting yesterday where that was the topic and we have to then take it to the full board. Uh, here's what's interesting. Uh, uh, and I have to be careful here. And of course, I'm speaking for myself. I should disclaim that I'm not speaking on behalf of the San Jose Pension Board. Um, I think we do a good job in some ways of thinking about diversification. We've got a lot of great consultants and, and they build a lot of models for us and they show us the power of diversification in mitigating risk. But when it comes to some sub asset classes like venture capital, I think the concern is uh, it's very easy to get seduced by the fund of funds and the brand names who are the avatars of access, right? And everything is about access. And so there, there's some analysis, which Joe's done a lot of work on beneath just who are the, who are the brand name funds, but who are the ones who are actually deploying capital in a way that is optimal for building portfolios that I don't think gets done as often as it should avatars of access i'm going to give you full credit for that and use that a ton because that is a wonderful imagery well, yeah i mean everyone has to be really aware just like eisenhower had his military industrial complex there is this unholy uh, alliance between fund of funds and underlying gps right what do the fund of funds want to do get bigger uh so they can have more assets under management and more management fee and how do you get bigger uh, by pushing the bigger funds or helping the bigger funds even get bigger and bigger, right? So um, that that's my biggest complaint when when we look at at investing through those channels. Yeah, yeah, you're 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 of course right. Um, in when we're thinking in terms of the structure of a venture fund model, and again, we're not going to go through the research in detail. It's linked in here, but there's tons of other research on this. That uh, what is the optimization of what is proper diversification in a venture fund? Well, as you might expect, a seed stage has a different optimized diversification conclusion than an A round or a B round. Um, but due diligence doesn't solve for transaction or non-systematic risk. Only diversification does, folks. So concentrated venture portfolios don't work. Optimal diversification in the seed stage is roughly 150 companies, equal weighted, index-like. This is not brain surgery. A lot of these are fundamental practices from public market investing that's well since been sorted out in practice for a long time. Okay. So at the A round, it's roughly 60% of your seed round, and the B round is roughly 50% of your A round. These are optimization models that's been well sorted out. Again, the research is in here. The second risk, risk is what's called systematic risk or timing risk or market risk. And certainly in the venture world, it's thesis risk because of the lack of liquidity. You can't sell an asset. And that's starting to be addressed with some degree of, of more efficient secondary markets. Um, but the issue, you have to view it as a long-term hold. So you have to get the venture thesis right because you're stuck with it. And that's called systematic risk and timing risk. And the it in, in fact, according to the robust research that's been done, is the single most important risk to manage. So a careful selection of the venture thesis is important. You don't want to say we're going to build a perfectly diversified portfolio of four G motor manufacturers, right? Or fill in the buggy whip manufacturer. Buggy whip makers was the, the analogy or, or metaphor that was used for years. 
Um, now we can pick a technology theme. But at the end of the day, you have to be careful on the venture thesis. The broader the thesis, the less likely that thesis has systematic risk. That's why you see it in the public markets index fund-like investing, because you're diversified across industries. Um, but the work shows that staging the capital deployment over multiple rounds is equally and critically important because that is in effect the timing risk of the capital deployment anniversaries or the windows in time. All you've got to do is look back and see the exogenous risks that have affected the venture asset class like 9-11 or a pandemic or, or, or. But you also have issues at the company specific level where it could be a fill in the blank uh, Adam Newman, or it could be a Theranos situation, or it could be a Me Too situation, where something happens disruptive that's specific inside the company. It's not an exogenous event. Investors need to be able to deploy their capital in a measured way so that they're not all in too early and have something happen externally or internally to blow up the outcome of that specific company in an under-diversified portfolio that then hasn't outsized impact on the long-term impact of the company portfolio itself. So again, this is all from the lens of a money manager's or portfolio manager's perspective, which is what obviously Seth and, and Anurag also have a great deal of experience on. Again, I wanted, I'm just trying to summarize some of the research and then throw it back to you guys. Anurag, what is your thoughts on this market timing risk? Because you and I have had some interesting chats about this, and I think we found ourselves somewhat on, on two sides of the table, on at least the, the concept in the venture asset class. What, what would you like to offer up or call me an idiot? <laughs> Definitely not going to call you an idiot. I, I think on the on the timing and market risk, uh, I'm struggling to remember where there was phase between your point of view and mine. I mean, the, I think um, that the biggest issue that I find in, in the venture industry is just uh, at, for a long-term investor, you've got to deal with these uh, these booms and busts, right? We're coming out of 20 and 2021 with these insane valuations. And so now you go into this corrective uh, period where essentially what happened is companies raised money at too high valuations. You, you can't blame them for taking the money at high valuations because it's less dilution. They all want to own more of their companies. But what they've effectively done is they've, they've, they've narrowed the eye of the needle so much. They have to execute so flawlessly to be able to raise money in, in the markets uh, that we're in currently. And so for me, um, as a practitioner, you know, it's frustrating. I, I have certain things I advise companies. Um, they don't always take my advice because people like to play checkers instead of chess when they think about the seven to 10 to quite frankly, 15 year horizon, if they want to build a company uh, that that's big and enduring, that they're going to have to think through all of these di different decision tree nodes down the line. But as an allocator, I mean, the, the bit, my biggest concern is I have to withstand these different market cycles. So I've got to be in it for the long run, but I've got to be in the right managers who are diversifying their risk. And that's been the struggle is finding folks who think that way at the practitioner level when I'm trying to invest in them as an LP. So I don't know if that answered your question directly. Well, I, I think that was exactly what we're hoping for. Seth, any thoughts on this topic? Well, sure. I want to kind of pull part of the, the concept of diversification as well as um, stage capital deployment, like the underlying conditions. And, and Joe, you make a lot of reference to how, how do things look in public markets or in this kind of index-like approach. You know, the assumption there is that there, you know, that there is enough uh, grist for the mill 
right? That to like have an index, you have to have enough things to index, right? right, right. Um, it's kind of a banal point, but I think it's an important one. The, the model, if we're talking about kind of the, the limitations of the venture model, it's not really sized appropriately. It's a much, it's the way that it operates is at a much smaller scale, right? So you'll see um, funds, smaller funds, medium-sized funds with, you know, what would not pass the muster for pro appropriate diversification in a public market setting, right? But what's been happening over the last, you know, 30, 40 years and what we've seen and, and what this culture has helped produce, um, and there's always a kind of a paradox here because the, the culture both produces problems, but it also produces um, benefits as well. One of the things that it's produced is capacity, right? And so, you know, um, venture as an asset class is no longer just limited to, you know, nine counties in California, right? Like right. it's across the country. Um, there's incubators, accelerators, small funds all over. We, we all know these, you know, I think we all have these little pet regions and things um that that we really like for various reasons or are connected to the point of all that though is that the capacity has been created but the model as it exists today isn't sized for the capacity that it helped create and so you know i just want to stress this point for for everybody that you know i think one of the underlying assumptions here as we're thinking through um you know these different strategies it assumes a certain kind of macro condition and if you take that macro condition, you know, it's it kind of you have to sort of think for yourself a little bit of like, how does the world look right if, if the world looks like there's only, you know, a few hundred or a couple thousand um, venture companies, then yeah, it's all of these things are, are very difficult. But if we're talking about a much broader trend nationally, uh, internationally, then suddenly you realize like, oh, there's other opportunities. There's a different way to organize these resources, right? There's a better way to optimize on them. That's again, brilliantly stated that you're talking about a systemic design and, and it's ironic again, uh, Tom Nicholas who teaches entrepreneurship at Harvard Business School right now. He wrote a, a wonderful book called VC and American History. It's worth a read for those that wanna get a good grasp of um, really how the venture industry evolved, because if you want to understand what the future might look like, you can, it's go, it really good to study the past uh, to Seth's point. And um, he literally said on page 311, it's ironic that the very industry that purports to fund innovation largely hasn't innovated. Why do, uh, I, why do I feel like I'm, a, I'm back in Michigan Law School and I'm, I'm, you're my professor? Page, <laughs> page 311. <laughs> I just know it well because I've had people that have read the book that missed it or argues with this point. So I just have referenced this so many times. But yeah, sorry about that. No, it felt it felt it's strangely calming. Giving <laughs> <laughs> people bad flashbacks, you know, it was a triggering. But can, can I can I challenge uh, you three for the? So I lived Please. in I lived I, I lived in the in the in the close of the. Uh, alternative CIO for a family office, and they're rich for a reason, right? They have a domain expertise. They, they have some edge. Now, that edge does not serve them well in 95% of the things that they look at, right? And then they, and they think they, they do have that edge. But there's, there's some kind of, I think, on these first-gen domain expertise-led families, you got to give them a little bit of, of uh, 
you know, uh, leeway in the allocation so they can they can flex that muscle while they have it. So I don't know what you, if that's part of your your theory that energy families are, you know, that's sort of a tougher thing because they're trying to judge. Maybe they can figure out reserve re <clears throat> reservoirs and and they've got you know they can they know they know how to have a long term play of, of a on um, maybe how to play gas in Louisiana or something. But failing that, uh, just is there is there room for that in your model that the for the domain expertise muscle flex? Well, you're you're if I can take a half step back, we're talking about the research to this that goes into defining an an optim a better venture model. Okay, if God forbid optimized venture strategy venture model. If we're finally seeing some material innovation and how we fund innovation because of the disruption that's taken place in front of our eyes to Venture 1.0, how do you design Venture 2.0 at the structural level? Now, who's running those funds? If it's a family, um, then maybe that's their venture thesis because they have a level of domain expertise and access and that sort of stuff. If they're running a fund, if they're investing, um, yeah, that's something, that's a whole different conversation. So you're, you're talking about from a family office and a fairly specific scenario, um, and, and the majority of this is talking about what should Venture 2.0 look like? And what's the research to help define the definition and the design of Venture 2.0? Well, I hear you. I just think it's iterative based on the perspective. And we are a family office-centered group. And I, I, I think that part of your model, maybe it's a future session, is to how and when and you can, you can be diversified. Yet sometimes you have an unfair advantage. And, the, and you should use it 100%. But, oh, know. absolutely. Well, it's interesting. And in, as I was just collecting my thoughts, the first session was why? Why is the venture model changing? Yeah, well, it needs to change. It's tired. We talked about all those things. This is a little bit of the how. And the next one is the what. And that's sort of, I think, to your point right there, Mark, is that what will that really look like at, at, at ground level? How would that be implemented and still be able to lean into some degree of uh, edge or advantage or domain expertise or what have you? That's more of the what. Okay. But this is building a case. It's we can do it in an accelerated fashion because, uh, <laughs> the, the, like I said, of what we're seeing happen in in, um, in front of our eyes. Um, the third point, and again, uh, this is just the three fundamental risks: non-systematic risk, systematic risk, and then this third one. You think of it as the whole money ball concept, data-driven decision models, right? And that's what I think is so lovely about the whole money ball concept is a, is you take out baseball scout and put in old school venture capitalists, and they sound just the same. I'm out here in the field and I've got a good network. I know what a good deal looks like, blah, 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 right? And so that's why Moneyball is also so terribly relevant. Daniel Kahneman is the patron saint of behavioral economics and behavioral finance. He is a psychologist, trained psychologist, um, but won the Nobel Prize in economics in 2002. He is the sort of who everybody else looks to, and it's his work that is the foundational work, of course, of the of the Moneyball concept. Um, the research that's linked is him making a simple point, but it's a profound one, particularly when we're talking about Venture 2.0, is that algorithms beat human bias, human decision-making models. Simple concept. The second component to that, though, is a really important one because this gets to the pragmatic, how do you? Almost that third step is simple algorithms be complex ones. Simple algorithms be complex ones. Now, 
the nature of the male ego and the alpha male, especially a fintech overly skilled and overly funded fintech programmers, they want to build exotic, complex algorithmic trading models, either in public or in their venture models, to validate their edge, to your point, Mark. But in fact, that's a suboptimal model, and this is Nobel Prize winning work, folks. Um, is that simple algorithms be complex ones as long as that algorithm was designed and built by somebody that actually knows what they're doing, not trying to figure it out on the fly, oftentimes using somebody else's money to pay for their education, uh, LPs I'm speaking of. Um, but also they understand what the right data points are. You know, as a, I was a securities analyst for a number of years, uh, managing, doing our own securities analysis, and you didn't have the same financial metrics on a utility company you did on a tech company or an energy company. Yet we haven't real or the stage of a, a, a mature utility company for an earlier stage utility company or late stage oil and gas or early stage. There are different metrics for the life cycle stage as well as the business model. These are the right KPIs and yet there's been no maturation in, in really even that understanding in a data driven optimized venture strategy. A lot of the same damn KPIs just banded around, particularly in these earliest stages. So again, I'm, I'm a bit, getting a bit professorial and, and up on a pedestal here. And I don't want to just do, do all the talking, but this is, this is an important concept if we're going to design an optimal way to deploy capital in Venture 2.0. I know it's got to manage systematic risk. Number one risk, timing risk, systematic risk. Number two, you need proper diversification at each stage of that capital deployment. And number three, you damn well got to get the shiny object syndrome and protect against the human biases that have laced Venture 1.0. We know how that ends. I'll open it up to you two for again contribution, contradiction, experience. You guys are on a roll, so I'm just teeing it up and letting you guys uh, give your insights. I can uh, uh, kick it off a little bit. Um, you know, also just to, to pull in the question uh, from before earlier about you know space for applying your edge, uh, especially in a family office context. Um, you know, I think if we think about just looking at the slide, some of these concepts here uh, that are more related to what we might call the old model, access, conviction-based, applying your edge, you know, I think there's always going to be a space for all of that. You know, this is why, like in the family office context, I'd always begin with building out, that's uh, why governance is so important in family offices, but, you know, a family mission statement or, you know, really getting into, well, what is the real vision here? Uh, in a lot of cases, you know, people like to do things that they know that they can do well. We all like to do things that we can do well. We like the positive feedback we get from it. And so if a person has an edge or has a has a thing that they do well, they want to be able to continue to do it even after they don't need to do anything because they've made so much money. Oftentimes people still want to do it. It's not necessarily because they want to build another multi-billion dollar company, but just the the positive reinforcement. I think there should always be space for that. I think it's the str strategy is, I think two things. One is the strategy of thinking, okay, how does this fit within the whole allocation, this kind of like whole perspective? Um, because, you know, up until this new research that Joe's been kind of pointing to, you know, really up until call it last 10, 15 years, I mean, I think first behavioral economics article came out in like the mid late eighties, but it was more focused on, on um, stock picking, you know, uh, so it's like really relegated to thinking in public markets. And it's only been more recently that it's kind of expanded into, um, you know, thinking about the application in, in um, 
private and, and early stage. And the point is that the old model as it exists for a long time, it was you know, perceived to be, well, things are done this way because this is the only way they can be done, right? And so now and then we're starting to see, okay, well, there's other ways to do things. That doesn't mean that you have to just completely switch your script. It's just, it gives you a tool to kind of think more holistically. Um, I would always use opportunities, I'll just say personally and, and fam a very family office specific comment that just, you know, when I see a patriarch or a matriarch with a specific edge, I always think about how can we pass that knowledge down to, um, to generations, to communities, you know, to people that this family office really cares about or wants to serve in, in different ways. So I always think there's opportunities to like exercise those muscles productively, but you can now pair that with different sets of tools around, you know, all of the things that, that we're talking about here today. That's, yep. Thank you, Seth. Honor? Yeah. Um, well, <laughs> look, it may, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll address it since it's an open-ended question by giving you a very open-ended answer. Um, uh, bottom line is I'm long innovation. Um, if there's one mistake I made personally, and you always have to be careful about your own confirmation bias, is coming out of the NASDAQ bubble bursting, I'd say in the 2000s, I had a bit of a failure of imagination for where uh, technology innovation would go in the last decade. And as I look out, I can think of four or five platform technologies that might be as large as what the internet uh, created. So to me, that's fantastic as whether it's in my own personal account or as an LP or just as someone who's in the venture game, I'm I'm look, I'm seeking alpha like everybody else is and in a managed way. I think what gets really interesting for me is the is the notion of how do you manage it in this particular asset class. And when you set up the construct of asset class versus access class, I think you and I have had debates on the notion of this being an asset class. It doesn't have the same liquidity characteristics as some other asset classes, but there are other private asset classes that behave more like an asset class. And so instead of getting too caught up in like how much capital can the system absorb, um, how do people handle indexing when they're stuck for 10 to 15? And quite frankly, it is 15 years in most venture firms, unless they're very late stage. I think what's much more interesting is thinking a lot more about the decision process risk and there will always be an element of expertise. Um, and look, I like niche markets personally. I, I'm not a cap capitalist. Capitalism is uh, efficient market theory, right? I like inefficient markets where you can exploit some kind of asymmetric information advantage. Um, but those days as it pertains to venture, given how it's big, are, are, are few and far between. And I think you need to be armed much more with the type of, comments you're making, Joe, around eliminating some of the biases and inefficiencies. And we know you're probably onto something with that, because I can think of four or five venture firms that are already starting to invest much more algorithmically, looking at massive data sets over the past 30 years to understand the decision points from C to A, A to B, C to D, and all the way to some you know exit or shutdown of a company. Um, I think what's most interesting about this, and maybe this is a provocative statement, is where does this arm an LP to potentially circumvent um, the, the, the keepers of the gate uh, in, in the venture world and start to build portfolios directly where they can be properly diversified. Um, and I also think it, uh, geographic diversification is important because I agree with Seth's point, uh, entrepreneurship has become more global and certainly more national. So I threw a lot at you there. Uh, I, I hope there was something yeah. worth keeping. 
I, I, well, again, I, 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 but it was wonderful. Um, yes, we've been seeing changes. Yeah, I, I, if you look at what's happening in the Venture 1.0, we're going through a classic Clayton Christensen disruption cycle. And change was happening below the surface, oftentimes from folks outside the existing system. You, you know, the adoption curves were the innovators and then the early adopters. You know, we're going through some of this classic roadmap in, in the Venture 1.0. Now we're at the disruption cycle. I mean, that's literally what we're witnessing um, since Friday. Um, so there's going to be a ton of change. And I think the directional change, one of the directional changes, Anurag, you point out, because I've heard this through Mel, is that you'll see that some fiduciary pools of money, whether that's a pension plan, a serious foundation, not just a personal private foundation, but like a MacArthur Foundation or Rockefeller, you know, the, where you're, or Ford Foundation, some of these long-held foundations that are very much long-cycle process-driven, will maybe even bring their impact investing in-house instead of deploying it out to ancillary impact um, managers, GPs. They'll bring it in-house and index it, right? We're seeing some of these yeah. sort of things happen at the pension plan level in the public market. So I always like to look to the investor's behavior because we have a window to study the public market investors, how the industry evolved given the investor's behavior, because that will largely, I think, drive a lot of these changes as well. Um, you know, you have a thought there? Yeah, I know what I was going to say is for for a pension plan, we, we have we, we have to be a little bit careful about, you know, going direct. There's all sorts of headline risk associated with that. Oh, I'm, yeah. forgetting, I'm forgetting about the big government blowout uh, when uh, they made the big loans to the company out in Fremont, California, the Department of Energy. And <laughs> it didn't work out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, turns out I know I know a young lady who's now studying at business school who uh, worked uh, in the Department of Energy in that program. It's actually been profitable over the past 10 years, but you had the one headline risk with the one loan that was sure. a disaster. But I do think other institutions may be in a position to be able to figure out, and this is the key for me, when you're going to pay two and 20, when, when you're going to pay this tax burden, what are you actually getting for it? I mean, when when there's expertise to be had, you should definitely pay for it. And, and if it gives you an edge, just like in any other asset class, you pay for research or, or in this asset class, maybe access with a lowercase a. Um, but a lot of this can be done through good information and data uh, I think by by the limited partners themselves. I and I couldn't agree more. It has to ultimately, and this sort of gets to I think a nice transition to the next slide. Mark, why don't you go to the next slide? Because I want to be respectful of time. I think we're at forty five minutes now, roughly. So we're already going to the bottom of the hour, Mark. Yeah, the, <clears throat> I mean typical three sixty one. We we go and until there's a an energy shift. Okay. Well, I think, again, Anurag, I think that was a wonderful transition to what this last slide is, traditional ecosystem players changing. And I think that's what we're seeing, and we're seeing an acceleration of those changes. Um, looking at a classic disruption cycle and seeing where disruption's taking place and what the narrative the existing players were saying, you're seeing the same thing now coming out of Silicon Valley um, as a result of the Silicon Valley bank blow up is that this is too critical. We've got to perpetuate the old system bail out the old system. We need to perpetuate it because it's too systemically important. Well, sorry, that's a that's a limited perspective. Um, disruption is an important part of capitalism. And sometimes you need to take some assets and put them in a new set of hands because that old set of hands were able to extract two and 20, but they really didn't have talent. They didn't earn that 2% management fee because there's no evidence of alpha creation. You know, if you're a fiduciary deploying capital, you're happy to pay for talent. 
the hard part in this asset class is how much talent is really out there, how much of we're opportunistic people in the right place at the right time, because they were able to perpetuate this access um, approach to how money was deployed to startups. And I think that's the, one of the fundamental things that is changing is it's just a, it's, it's become a, it's going to be, it's going to become a much more of a profession and ask, treat it as an asset class versus an access class. The industry itself, the NVCA is going to um, <laughs> much, well, I don't want to get too political. The NVCA has been in place in 73, but it's been a lobbying organization to protect the industry from accountability and frankly, professional standards. It has not been a best practices professional uh, organization to professionalize it. Okay, there's no certified venture investor certification. The industry's never even adopted a standardized, proper, rigorous performance calculation. So you could do and see where there actually is talent worth paying 2% for on a ride. Um, there's, it's been largely obfuscated. Um, Ken Goldman on session one talked about this at great, we talked about this at great length and the frustration because Ken, I think he said is he's been involved in over a hundred venture funds. I mean, I think he personally has over hundred K ones coming from different funds as an LP. He says, I just want my money back in a decent return. <laughs> Holy cow. Right. I don't care about all the noise, all the fluff, all the up rounds and all the purported uh, IRR that before there's ever been exits or liquidity events. He says, I just want a decent return on my money. And this is a guy in the belly of the beast that's got over 100 venture funds and it sort of was exasperated with it. Honor, you had a thought? I mean, it's in a different asset class and I can't name the manager, but uh, we pay three and 30 to someone because they generate alpha. I, it, it, there's nothing about two and 20 that makes me uh you know it's like the the painting the scream it's i just want to assess the value am i getting yeah. alpha for what i'm paying that's all it comes down to if, it could be five and, and 40 if you're making my plan or me money if you're still delivering alpha after fees absolutely the fees don't yeah. matter because it's still alpha now there's a certain pay, pain threshold of reasonableness that comes around but be that as it may i agree with you alpha is an after fee calculation and if you're delivering alpha then fees shouldn't matter Unfortunately, yeah, there's very little alpha delivered by the industry. One other uh, pet peeve that I'd like to share, probably because you, you got me thinking after you mentioned Ken's remarks, um, I, the, the notion of, of, of using IRR to calculate uh, fund returns and ventures always struck me as strange because I, listen, I am, I'm an unfrozen caveman lawyer. I didn't go to business school like most of you. I don't have a CFA, so I had to crack open a corporate finance textbook when I was 27 when I realized the practice of law wasn't for me and, and kind of upskill and reskill. And it's either in chapter one or chapter two of that book they call the Bible for corporate finance, where they talk about IRR calculations, which are a calculation of cash flow, right? Your first period is negative, and then the, the ensuing periods hopefully are positive. Uh, and then you set your discount rate to zero to see what the internal rate of return of the project is marked up valuations on a quarterly basis in a portfolio that will not generate cash for 15 years is a fiction. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And, and there's no time-weighted and dollar-weighted calculation. I mean, the industry can, and, and they say, oh, it's too difficult because of the cash flows. No, that's what a spreadsheet is. It can calculate all that. It's a rationalization for not having a standardized performance calculation based on cash flows. If you did it by cash flow, I have to believe that the actual IRRs for the industry would be substantially worse and and, and the two and 20 becomes a bigger drag. I, I don't yeah. know that to be tried and done the, uh, the research, but I'd bet a stake dinner on it. 
I wouldn't take the other side of that bet. I can almost guarantee it. And that's the whole point. Venture 1.0 has been able to get by with that. And now they're not going to. It has to be professionalized. Now, uh, the SEC is, according to Foley and Lardner, that link is to a, a, a summary article from Foley and Lardner reviewing what's happening at the SEC right now in changing the Reg D laws. This will affect hedge funds and venture funds and startups seeking capital. But again, they're starting with requiring transparency. They're escalating the transparency expectation. And this is from a couple of weeks ago, or late February was the notes. So this is even before what's happening with, with Silicon Valley Bank today and the industry writ large, is that the government is moving in this direction to bring more professionalism to how we're the participants in the innovation economy. Now, Reg D also applies to hedge funds as well. And they could use some cleaning up themselves. Um, but this is particularly relevant because when you just look at the basics of system design, how do you optimize on the efficient flow of capital? You need the efficient flow of information, which requires trans transparency. And a lot of the frustrations and a lot of the flaws are the absence of transparency. You can see specific examples or systemic design flaws, which is what we're talking about with Venture 1.0. So these things are happening. Um, the, the largest, I think, and the most important thing to think about, and for the listeners of this, either live or, or folks that might listen to the recording, is this is a classic disruption cycle. You can't sit there and think that Venture 1.0 has is, is not going to change or that it doesn't need to change. And in fact, it's happening in front of our eyes. And that's actually a healthy thing, which breeds all sorts of opportunities to create an edge for people that are willing to look forward versus try and perpetuate the past. There's going to be a lot of folks out there launching funds off the old model. And by God, they're going to have to lean in on their purported edge when they have zero track record of ever showing they actually have an edge that was deployed to create alpha for anybody. Think of emerging managers. So those are the folks that are going to have to become um, the outliers versus the traditional or conventional model for a venture fund. They're going to become the outliers. And yeah, they're going to suffer for fundraising without a doubt. And they're going to have their fund size cut in half while the folks that are adopting a more institutionally rigorous, professionalized way to deploy capital to give the LPs more confidence that alpha would be the end game and result, that's who, where the money's going to flow. I don't think there's any, it's not hard to predict that. We've seen it happen in the public markets, and it's now coming to the private markets. So for folks that operate in the world of innovation and investing, if you're, un, if you're not viewing it in that context, then you're choosing to let's just say, deny the inevitability and the realities and the, the obvious pattern that's unfolding in front of us. And a lot of people do that. That's part of the human condition as Seth is so good at articulating. So I know we're wrapping up here and I'd love to leave it for you two just to sort of finish up. Seth, why don't you give me your thoughts on sort of the changes and any predictions, if you will, or what this might look like or could look like or should look like. Sure, happy to. Um, and we'll put Q&A, I guess. Yeah. I, um, you know, with uh, SIVB, with what, you know, what happened in crypto markets um, last year, um, we all sort of see there are strains on the system and they're going to be continuing to pop out in unexpected ways. Um, things are getting shooken up and there's always going to be a kind of reactionary impulse that want, that makes people want to kind of double down on what they're comfortable with and what they know to be true. And um, 
then I think what I think this means in, in the case of venture is a lot of those old, the, the sort of old model, there will be a reversion to that in some ways, or there, you know, it's, it's you know, when, when the only uh, uh, tool you have is a hammer, every problem is a nail, right? But Joe, I think what you're pointing out with this research, uh, this growing body of research, what we're already seeing in, in um, you know, some organizations taking these different kinds of what they're calling algorithmic approaches, uh, you know, but uh, often, you know, it's really, to your point, it's not even that complicated of an algorithm. It's more just a, you know, trying to apply a higher level of diversification. There's going to be a quiet shift that's happening. I, I just think that, you know, um, if you're not really paying attention to it, it's not going to kind of happen overnight. Um, but slowly but surely, the the underlying conditions of this whole asset class or sector is is in the process of changing. It's not going to be like a wake up one morning and on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, it's like, hey, venture has changed, right? I mean, <laughs> if that article gets written, it'll happen five years after everybody's already been on board with it, right? And so I think the what we're talking about here is a, you know, I, I hate to say an opportunity, but it's certainly there's a moment of uh, an opportunity to kind of think critically about the underlying conditions and the models that are deployed currently. We're starting to see like alternative ways of devising this and approaching this. And, you know, there is the kind of, an, you know, uh, Joe, you've, you've used this word inevitability. I mean, I do think there is an inevitability here, um, but it, it, you know, it's a kind of a quiet inevitability. And the old model will still continue to exist in some form or fashion. It will always, you know, in, in the same way that like, you know, I mean, to get like big, super big picture macro, you know, when, when, you know, capitalism displaced feudalism, like feudal structures continue to exist, you know, these old structures will persist in different ways. That's, that, that doesn't mean that the world isn't changing, right? right. So I think you want to, you, you want to have to, you know, you have to have a little bit of that parallax view. You have to be able to kind of see two things simultaneously to kind of recognize everything that's happening. Um, but, you know, that old model, my last point, I'll just say that some of these groups will take this new, uh, all of this, these new ideas, Joe, that you're, you're sort of highlighting here, and they're going to like, try to squeeze them into the old model, right? And again, that's a typical way that people, because again, we're comfortable with what we know. So people are gonna try to marry the old and the new, and it's gonna create some very strange amalgams and this sort of thing. And I just encourage everybody to be like very, you know, critical and thoughtful and, and really take a hard look at a lot of these different kinds of underlying dynamics because there's a lot going on right now. There's a lot going on right now. Thank you, Seth. That was just brilliant as usual. Anurag, thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I I I really like what Seth said. I, the old model. I, I think there's even some business school professor out there who's done an analysis on like old technologies being disrupted by new ones. I think the steam engine was still around for you know 70 years, even though <laughs> airplanes. And there's examples uh, other. I heard this in in, in the vein of. Um, you know, how quickly renewable energies will replace oil, like oils, we're going to have it for 70 years based on these, these kind of models, right? And I think that's really an important point to make in terms of what we're talking about right now. The old model isn't going away anytime soon, but um, there is a new emerging model and it has to be informed by the right data. And there's such massive data sets out there 
to start to deploy, I think you keep calling it sort of algorithmic thinking. And I think there's a way for folks to also toy with this two and 20 model and maybe disintermediate it a little bit, maybe have the confidence to go directly because there is better data, there is better information and to start to construct portfolios themselves, which I think ultimately you're playing innovation. You're not trying to play venture capital as an asset class. You're, what I want is the ability to pick up companies at really low valuations, but knowing there's a high failure rate. So how do I maximize that portfolio so I can get the most return out of it. Otherwise, what do I have to do if I'm long innovation? I got to wait till these companies go public. Quite frankly, right now, that doesn't seem like a bad strategy when, when, when the alternative is to do it in the old model. Um, if I wait till they go public, yeah, they're at a higher valuation, but presumably they still have more growth. It's a liquid asset. I can buy puts, I can buy calls, I can do all sorts of things. Um, but you know, the greedy person in me really does want to take advantage of that 20 post money valuation on that next exciting company in autonomy or in space tech or in, um, synthetic biology. Um, and it's just getting harder and harder to extract the, the most alpha you can out of those opportunities in the old model. Yeah. Well, Joe, I, can we, can we allow a few questions if people can stick around? I mean, I don't know, oh. Seth, you got five, 10 minutes. You bet. Absolutely. And I, I just wanted to add, I, it's hard to add anything. I just want to give 30 seconds to sort of coming attractions, folks, because I've been giving you the look back and I'm going to give you a little coming attractions for what session three would look like is what's out there now. We're already seeing infrastructure being put in place for a secondary market liquidity to be added to this asset class. Pricing mechanisms in place so you can actually have confidence if you're selling it on a secondary whether it's an individual transaction or a portfolio is being sold on a secondary market, that you have confidence is just not an opportunistic buyer. There is a narrowness of the bid spread between the bid and ask, if you will. And the, and the bid is a reasonable NAV calculation based on underlying valuation. So there is the public market infrastructure plumbing that's getting put in place and test driven as we speak. So I think some of the summaries that were discussed here are perfect is that the old model is not going away but it's now going to shrink down in likely size and definitely dominance as far as how money is deployed to support innovative companies while these other infrastructures are expanding to incorporate a lot more of the public market best practices of both portfolio and risk management, but also liquidity, secondary markets, pricing mechanisms, et cetera, et cetera. And we're actually knee deep in, in involved in some of that stuff. That's why I've got a window on it. So I'll leave it there and open it up for Q&A, Mark. I'll let you quarterback that. Well, we, I, Mike, you had your hand up first. You have, you have a quick question? Mark Gailey here. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Joe, Anurag, and uh, Seth. That was an amazing uh, session. There was a question in the chat. I'm a chat watcher. The question was, Joe, do you know of an algorithm for startups? Is there a, a uh, do you have a thesis? And I wanted yeah. to- Yeah, I'm in the um, San Francisco Bay. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead, keep on. Yeah, the, the, the best algorithm I know of for a startup, you know, as far as how startups build themselves, or what do you mean by for startups? Uh, stock picking sort of algorithm or what? Well, I think it was the licensed technology you mentioned about your company at AngelSpam. Oh, okay. Well, I thought that's what you're mentioning. Yes. For those of you that haven't seen it, go look up the Bell Mason Diagnostic. It is a scientifically designed, architected, and back-tested algorithmic playbook on how to build a startup also partially built by Coopers and Librand, 
to uh, try and create a gap-like equivalent reporting structure for the earliest stages of the startup journey. So it's a, the only one that I know of that is a scientifically designed, architected, back-tested framework for to, to literally be able to both roadmap to build a startup, but also calibrate their success, i.e. calibrate the risk at the operational level of, a, of an individual company. And yes, we've licensed that for what we're building and Gordon Bell, the principal architect is actually an investor and on my cap table, like on AngelSpan. Any other, next question? Richard? Uh, Joe, Seth, Anirag, thank you so much. Um, one of the things I sort of comment question, we've seen quite a lot of um, people who are looking to deploy pure AI models into the startup space. And for me, that feels like it's an overstretch because the quality of the data and the quantity of the data for your AI model just doesn't seem to But I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Sorry, Joe, I, I didn't hear you. I said, go ahead. Either you go ahead. I've got plenty of comments, but I don't want to just dominate the microphone. Well, I was going to say, I mean, you're building the algorithm, so you're going to have a lot more insight into this from, from the bottom up. But I have uh, been talking to several funds that are um, trying to use algorithms for finding deal flow, for making uh, decisions at various decision points that, that are typical along the life cycle journey of a startup. Um, and what I would say is, I think it's promising. Um, you know, are they finely tuned and optimized? No. Are they a, a work in process? Yes. Um, do I think human judgment has to sit alongside it? Uh, I think that's true with most AI models, um, unless they're they're really narrow in scope and in, in a very bounded environment. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm encouraged with what I'm seeing thus far. What I would inject is that again, I. If you look at the public markets, quant strategy has been around a long time. There's been plenty of computing horsepower to try and get a, 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 a information edge or a process edge or trading edge in the public markets. Um, I was a securities analyst and we used data and we uh, bought data that everybody else had access to. We didn't have an information edge. It was really a process edge. How you use that information and the way you architect the, the use and the incorporation of the human component, honoring to your point, the human input is where the edge comes. You can't just get an information edge. And like I said, we've seen this happen through, you know, trading systems work till they don't work. And they oftentimes, if they're hardcore quant, they blow up mercifully or, uh, or unmercifully, excuse me. I mean, it just gets really ugly. So you always have to have some human intervention as a relief valve and a, and a um, almost like a breaker switch, but it also has to it not just be completely data-driven because it will, I would never invest in that. Seth, any input on that? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the, uh, the, the comparison with public markets is an interesting one because uh, those, uh, those quant strategies were successful because they were existing within a, very kind of data-rich, sophisticated, robust environment. With what we're talking about, it's sort of like, I feel like it's sort of, it's like you're, you're trying almost like, uh, I would, you know, again, I would need to read the research. I'm speaking not, not with all the, the uh, materials in front of me, but it almost feels like, you know, you're trying to build a, a maglev train before you have like a little streetcar going like at this, at this sector, there's so much need for just fundamentals. And, and you know, that's 
a lot of the stuff we talked about today, it's very basic. I mean, I think everybody sure, I'm sure everybody on the call, I mean, uh, we all know the power of, of diversification. These are like very fundamental strategies and structures and things. I think when you create an environment like that, that's kind of strong on the fundamentals that has that, that firmament on top of that, you know, that's where I think I would think that then you could extract even more efficiency or, you know, better uh, information yield with a kind of algorithmic or, or AI approach. But my, my personal view on, on the space and the sector is there needs to be a lot more kind of foundational work, just basic infrastructure. Um, but again, all of that is coming. And this is part of that okay. slow inevitability that, that we're yeah. talking about. It's happening as we speak. Yeah, it is. Yeah, that's, that, that's right. It, it, it's, you're, there's low-hanging fruit that people are building algorithms around. And I don't know where it will go. And I certainly don't like to predict the future. But I, I think it's an important input that can make uh, a lot of folks a lot smarter in this space and get away from the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain, which is what's been sold to most of us. Um, and I get in trouble because I wear a GP hat part of the day and I wear an LP hat part of the day and my GP friends say, why do you go around saying this kind of stuff? <laughs> <laughs> but it's the truth. You're speaking truth. Um, well, and, and again, these are, these are inevitabilities. Change is happening. I, I do think, and again, we don't need to pile onto the Silicon Valley. There's plenty of people on the inside that's going to do lots of post-mortem and lawsuits are already popping up. So there's going to be plenty of conversation around this. And Stephen, prior, the, the chat prior to this is that's all within the backdrop of an economy that is and a banking system writ large and an economy that is in pretty interesting perspective and place and time right now. And so there's no shortage of cross currents at this stage. But in if you study history, what has pulled us out of any difficult period of time was entrepreneurship. And that's, I think, why this topic is so critical to get right, to get those fundamentals in place so that Venture 2.0 and entrepreneurship is optimized from a sound foundational level going forward. Because it's, I think it's going to be even more important to get this right in this cycle than it has been in prior economic cycles writ large. So... I'm not sure if there's any more questions, Mark. We can, I know we can sit here and field tons of them for hours, but um, I know we're also running, running long based on the allocated time.